Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Malthouse Games Podcast. This is a podcast all about tabletop games, card games, role-playing games, the people playing the games, and the drinks we like to have while we play. This is episode 17. No. Yes, it's the 17th episode. No. Are you just going to say no to everything? No. All right. My name is Delton. I am your host, and my co-host today is the usual yellow player, my lovely wife, Haley. Hello there. So it's a Sunday, lazy Sunday. It's uh, two days after my birthday, which was June 22nd. You should wish me a late happy birthday. Happy late birthday. Woo! You already got all your presents. I did. Haley got me some awesome presents. The first thing she let me do was order the collector's box for Raiders of the North Sea through Garp Hill Games. Uh, We got that ordered from Germany. I don't know. It's supposed to ship this month before July. I don't know when exactly. They said late June, so I'm expecting that to come in sometime in July. She got me a t-shirt of the Team Galactic from Gel's Marble Races. If you ever watch the Marble Races on YouTube. Or the Marble Olympics. Or the Marble Olympics, which are probably the best events. Go watch them. The guy who does them designed logos for all the teams, and the Team Galactic logo is by far the coolest, and I think the best designed. So Haley got me a shirt with that, which was awesome. She also got me a bottle of The Last Dab, which is the final hot sauce from the YouTube show Hot Ones. They make it with a group called Heatonist out of like New York, I think. But it's a hot sauce. This one's the scorpion pepper. And it's the last one in their lineup of 10 hot sauces. It is the hottest. For example, if you read the back of the bottle for like Tapatio, the first ingredient is water. For the last dab, the first ingredient is scorpion peppers. Yes, so it is extremely, extremely hot. I will probably die after a little bit. We will try it one of these days soon. We should talk about what happened on Tuesday. uh, We'll get there for sure. Uh, She also got me three Funko Pops. I enjoy little collectible figures and things. I love One Piece, the anime. And I have some One Piece figures, some Bonpresto little guys I found at Barnes & Noble. And then I have a Funko Pop of... Zoro and Haley got me three more Funko Pops for my birthday because we got Zoro from Zack and Sarah. And then we found the Nami, the Boa Hancock, and the Frankie at Barnes and Noble, like buried. Frankie! So that's super awesome. But that was that. The hot sauce story Haley was going to talk about was we made some hot sauce cauliflower wings, cauliflower hot wings basically, and we used Mad Dog 357. This used to be the second hottest sauce on the show. It has since been, I think, removed from the lineup. The Hot Wings show, that is. The Hot Ones. Hot Ones, yes. It's 357,000 Scoville, which the Scoville is kind of a made-up unit of measurement for heat from spicy things. But I guess everybody follows it. I don't know. Anyway, we put some on some wings. And by put some on those cauliflower wings, we mean we, like, coated them in them. We didn't just put a drop on there. They were coated in a sauce. And we ate some. And holy Moses, those things were hot. Danielle ended up crying. She did. I ended up projectile vomiting a few times. She did. And Delton drank like half of a carton of almond milk. Basically, yes. I apparently am a pansy when it comes to a lot of hot sauce. I thought I was doing pretty good with my hot sauce intake. I thought so too. Like when we go eat Thai food, we normally get five star and we power through it like champs. The thing is though, that this hot sauce is made of hot pepper extract. So it's not actually made from just the peppers. It's an extract of the heat, so it's just made to burn your face. Whereas the bottle you bought me is actually made from those peppers. Well, if it's meant to burn your face off, it did a really good job. It did. That thing was hot. It made the inside of my right ear hurt, 
which I, was a strange feeling. I laid on the bed just whining, absolutely whining for 20 minutes. I'm an adult. I'm a grown-ass adult. Yeah, but that was really hot. It was really hot. Ugh, it was brutally hot. But that's really been what we've been dealing with. Haley got me these awesome presents for my birthday. It's been a good birthday. I started watching Doctor Who in the Peter Capaldi era. I got through that most of the first season. I can't think of which Doctor he is now, the 12th. I think he's number 12. I can't remember anymore. Oh, it's been so long. Maybe 11. No, no. he's 13. Because well, John Hurt was like the special wartime doctor, but they don't count him in the series. Oh. Because I think he was an older, I don't know. I think he's 12. I thought Tennant was 11, Matt Smith was 12. Tennant was 10. Tennant was 10? And Matt Smith was 11. So I believe Capaldi's 12. I know we're going to be corrected in the comments. I mean, we probably will be. So yeah. we'll just wait. That's okay. It's been a while. But I started into that, which has been great. I've missed the show a lot. I caught up on Tokyo Ghoul, so I'm up to weekly on that now. We have binge-watched in two days Rick and Morty Season 3 on Hulu, so we're through Rick and Morty. We binge-watched the second season of Queer Eye on Netflix, so it's done. And then, what else have we binge-watched? Anything? I think that's everything. I think that's all I've been watching. It's been like 48 hours solid of potato life. It's been amazing, though. I never get to do that. After three days straight of yard work of chainsaws and lifting and pulling and dragging and cutting and all that crap. I needed some couch time. This is all you're going to get until next birthday. That's fine. No Christmas? No Christmas. All right. Well, at least I got Gen Con coming up. True that. Now, this episode comes out a week from today. This is the 24th. So that will be... The first? My God, I think it is the first. <gasps> next month is Gen Con month. I know. Next month's the month we leave for our vacation. We go so Gen Con. that means that's the first. Then the episode after this one, episode 18, should air two weeks exactly. So the 15th. And then episode 19th will be the one right before Gen Con on the 29th. Gen Con. So it'll be the Sunday before Gen Con. Then we will have the episode after that, episode 20, will be all about Gen Con. The special Gen Con episode. We're going to wait and record the week we get back, so it'll be a little pushed on time for us. However, I want to talk about Gen Con. It might be a maybe a longer episode. We'll talk about the games we played and we bought, what we did, who we hung out with, all that on episode 20, so I'm super stoked for that. Because what's awesome, if you think about it, our first episode was all about Gen Con, and now our 20th will be all about Gen Con. Full circle. Yeah, so we're excited about that, so only a couple more episodes until Gen Con. It's been good up until now. Uh, in terms of the shirts, we're still working on it. I might do that. I need to go talk to some people. I have an idea for something super simple with our logo. All that's kind of in the works. I'll keep you guys updated between now and Gen Con. You mean the shirts from Malthouse, right? Yes. What other shirts would there be? I don't know. I just started talking about shirts and then... Well, yeah, kind of got last time we talked about it, Gen Con. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. What are we drinking today? Let's get into our first beer before we talk about the game today. This beer is a Spanish beer, not Mexican beer. Spanish beer. It has Spanish written on it. I can't assume it comes from Mexico, as I previously did, because I don't think I've seen a beer from Spain. It is 1906, Reserva Especial, and I can't read any of it because it's all in Spanish. And all I saw was that it is imported from Spain. It's a product of Spain made in uh, Coruña? Coruña, España? So, there you go. And it was imported in Lorton, Virginia. I don't know anything about this beer, but we're going to try it. Unlike the gluten-free, it did not go everywhere. The rug is safe, Mr. Lebowski. The rug is safe. The rug is good. It smells like beer. That's a plus. Definitely smells like Corona. 
like a richer Corona. It has that Mexican beer kind of smell to it. Let's give it a taste. Yeah, it's got that very, like what you expect from like a Corona, a Dos Equis, a Modelo, except it's better. It feels heavier on the tongue than a Corona would. It's yeah. like Corona if Corona had effort put in. <laughs> if it wasn't watered down. For those of you out there that don't know, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, what makes a beer like Bud Light and Corona Light and Keystone Light, what makes all of those light is they mix it with water. So if you ever wondered why it's watered down, it's because it is. It'll hydrate you. Now this is not watered down, you can tell, but it still has the taste of like what people expect from a, quote, Mexican beer. You know what I mean? That style. This is like if Corona got a master's degree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's actually not bad at all. I like that. Something that's a fun fact before we get into the game. So for those of you who don't know, the people of Mexico, the way that they brew Mexican beer is because the Germans that settled there or immigrated there, whatever, they taught them how to brew good beer. And that's how they learned beer brewing processes the way it is. They basically learned from the Germans and like the Austrians. Super solid. Super solid. All right, let's get into this game. Oh, here's the door. It's straight ahead. It's it's a game. So the game for today is one that I won through a Facebook drawing from a company called Brouhaha Games. Now, the owner, I believe, is Travis. I've got him on Twitter, and I follow Brouhaha on Twitter and Facebook. So that was super awesome to allow us to win that. So thank you to Travis and Brouhaha Games. I know, because I've been trying to get Delton to buy this game forever, but our friend Brian has it, and if our friend Brian has a game, Delton won't buy it. For some odd reason, he'll buy every other game in the world. We won't buy the games that I want because Brian has it, and he thinks that's enough, and it's not. I don't want to buy games that I can just ask my friend if I can borrow. Like, he's the only person I pretty much lend games to. I'm very stingy and, like, protective on my games. He's literally the only person you allow. I don't even think you would allow me to take your games with me. No. I just don't trust people. Like, I put too much money into these things to have them messed up by people, but I know Brian takes care of stuff. He's a magic <laughs> player. What What about me? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. What about me? Mm-hmm. I would take good care of your games. I bought half of them. You would, but would who you're playing with? No. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. <laughs> no. Anyway, the game of today is Azul. Now, Azul has been in the news since it came out. People have blown up about this game. It has recently been nominated for the Spiel des Jahres in Germany. The game is designed by Michael Kiesling, who's a very popular designer. I know the name, at least. I can't name any of his games because I'm lame, but I know he's popular. Uh, the art direction is Philippa Guerin. Illustration is Chris Quilliams, and graphic design is Philippa Guerin, Carla Ron, and Marie-Eve Jolly. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. Put out by Plan B Games through their, not sister company, it's actually part of their company, their next move, uh, like department or umbrella? something. Kind of like, a, yeah, Plan B is the umbrella, and next, umbrella next move is under it. Anyway, so Azul. Azul is super popular right now. It has been since it came out. It has been nominated for the Spiel des Jahres in Germany, which is a huge award for a board game to win. They have multiple categories. I think it's in the family game category. It could be in the Kennerspiel, which is the strategy, but I don't know. I think it's the family game. I think it's in the family game category. It seems more like a family style game. It's easy to learn and it's fun to play and the pieces are big and there's not a lot of strategery to be had. Well, there is a lot of strategy that you can employ. But it's basic strategy. It's not like long-term planning. I feel like employ is wrong. I've tried to use that before. Employ? Employ. Who would be employ? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So well, if you like go. use something like employ. 
You know, like I'm going to employ you to do a job. Yes. I'm going to employ the strategy. Yes. That sounds wrong, but I'll trust you on it because you have the degree here. Well, the master's degree. Call me master. No. Anyway, something cool I learned since you touched on the Spiel des Jahres, how it has easier rulebook, the Spiel, um, like, board, or, like, the head of the Spiel des Jahres committee, or whatever, talked about the, a lot of the reason that a bunch of games that they said were really good games didn't make it was because the rulebooks were not done well enough. And they basically said, if your rulebook is not clear and not easy to read and learn the game through, you're not even considered anymore. They will cut it. So a lot of games that people thought would be on there aren't because the rulebooks were not good enough. The only problem I have with the Azul rulebook is that the print is in Calibri. How do you know that? Because I recognize the font. I use Word every single day. It's the default. Yeah, but it looks clean. I mean... I know, but that's the default in Word. Here in Oklahoma, it is primaries for governor season. And the other day, we got a flyer on our door. And it looks like the guy made the title in Times New Roman but then didn't change the body from Calibri. And so you have Times New Roman in the title and then Calibri down below. And I'm just like, come on, man. It's easy to change it from the basics. Why is it default to Calibri anyway? It's not a nice font. It looks like a generic Times New Roman. That's understandable. Brian will back me up on this. Brian will back you up on that for sure. I don't mind it in this rule book because it makes it easy to read. Which, given, I'm sure there's easier to read fonts, but... Calibri. She just pointed to random words on the page and just said Calibri. Calibri. As if it... Okay. Anyway, Azul is a very cool game. So the way Azul plays... uh, I'm going to talk about the two-player setup, because I've only played with more than that a couple times. The two-player setup, each of you have your own little player board, and then there are five what they call factory tiles in the middle of the table. Then there is a start player tile in the center of those five factory tiles. You have a bag of all kinds of, I guess I shouldn't say factory tiles, little factory discs. There's a bag of tiles that you actually use to play the game with, and they have different colors. There's a blue one, a red one, a white one, a black one, a yellow one. I think that's all. But they're super nice, like really thick, almost domino-like tiles. They're very, very cool. You put, randomly, four from the bag onto each of those little factory discs that are out on the board, or out on the table, What happens is when a person takes their turn, they have to take one color off of one of those factory tiles and have to take all of the tiles of that color from that factory disc. I have to quit using tile because tile is everywhere in this. So if you have a factory disc in front of you that has three reds and a blue, you can either take all three reds or the one blue. So what you do is you pick that from any of those five factory discs. You take the tiles. Any that you do not take off of it gets slid to the center where that first player marker is, creating another pool that can be taken from. The tiles that you take will then be placed on your board. So on the right side of your board, there's this big 5x5 area that has the different colors of the tiles laid out in a different different pattern, I guess it is. Um, There should be five for each color on that 5x5 square. And on the left side, there are these horizontal rows. This game's kind of hard to describe without an image. There are these horizontal rows, numbered one through five, basically. There's one space down to five spaces. The tiles that you take, you have to place in those rows to fill them up. And at the end of everyone's turns, if you have a full row, you move one tile from that row into the five by five on the right side, 
to the corresponding colored spot. So you fill up a row on the left, you move one tile to the right to put on the quote wall, and then for anything it's adjacent to, you gain extra points. And you slowly build points that way, as well as horizontal rows, vertical rows, and getting all five of your colors on the board are worth points also. It's kind of a weird thing to describe, but basically you're taking these tiles, trying not to take too many or too few. If you take too few, you'll have to take more to fill a row. But if you take too many, those excess ones fall down and become negative points. Now, I said when you take all of the tiles of a color off of a factory disc, that the other ones you don't take go into the center with that first player token. What happens is, is if somebody takes from that center area, not only do they get the first player token to be first player next turn, the problem is that first player token is immediately worth one negative point. And something we've learned is nobody wants that negative point. Even though it's one, it's not even that big of a deal. Nobody wants to take that first. But it's a really, really neat game. It's very strategic. It's a lot of, um, I want to say, not tactility. I mean, it is very tactile feeling with those uh, tiles. But there's a, what's the term? Not strategy, but blank. It's like a shorter term responsive play. You know what I'm thinking of? I do not. There's a term. It's not your strategy. It's your, I guess it's tactics. I'm yeah, just an oh, idiot. Tactics, yeah. It's a very tactic filled game because you're, you can have an overarching huge strategy. The problem is it's not going to work because it's so, I mean, the tiles come out at random. People take different things. You really have to be responsive and adapt to everything. But what I think is great about this game, and even though I love Sagrada, Sagrada's up for the Spiel des Yadas too, right? I don't believe so, no. Oh, never mind. I don't think it is. I could be wrong. I thought they were. But the reason why I think this game is so great for the Spiel des Yadas, the Spiel des Yadas is more of a family game. Like, that's, that's what yep. it wins. But what I like about Azul is that an 8-year-old and a 28-year-old and a 58-year-old can have the exact same strategy and have an equal chance of winning. Because, yes, you can have a strategy in the game, but it levels the playing field across ages. And I feel like as long as you know the rules, it levels the playing field across player levels. So if you're experienced with board games versus non-experienced with board games, I feel like there's not a big discrepancy in your ability to play the game or develop a strategy. I can see that because you do have to remain so responsive and adaptive to everything being done. As long as you know the rules. It's simple. Yeah, it's simple to play. It's simple to see. It's simple to see the strategy. Like there's not Mm -hmm. a lot of long-term play. There's maybe three or four rounds or so that you can look towards and you got to wait for the little circles to be filled back in with tiles. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, it really will. As long as somebody hasn't played it like a hundred times to someone who's played it once, as long as you both know the game decently well, you can. There's not a lot of discrepancy between skill levels for the most part. There might be some small things that come with like a lot of plays, but it would be something that even if you're really good, it's not like chess and you're not just going to obliterate somebody. Because I like games with a lot of strategy. I mean, I love, my favorite game is Twilight Struggle. I love handing Delton's butt to him and strategy in that game. But I really love games that I can teach new people because part of the joy of being a board game player is teaching others to love the hobby as well, like Zach and Sarah. Sarah picked out this game. We we weren't able to play it with her, but I feel like if we were to sit down and play it with Zach and Sarah, who are fairly, fairly good at board games, they're pretty new into the hobby, but I feel like they would click with it and they would really enjoy it. I feel like it's easy to teach and it's easy for newer players to develop that strategy, which makes it a good all-around game. But that's something that I look forward to in board games. I feel like it might be too much for Zach 
<laughs> oh, poor Zach. I'm just kidding. He's just going to... Uh, he usually comments on YouTube because that's where he listens to the episodes. And so I know he's going to comment and be like, hey, you piece of shit. And then he'll be like, oh, wait, they said never mind in just a second. So I just wanted to pick on Zach. Hi, Zach. Love you, Zach. But yeah, Azul's just really awesome. It's very neat how you slowly build up. And part of what I like about the planning in the game is when you're building a, a vertical row and you build four tiles and leave spot for one, and then you build three horizontal tiles and still leave that same spot open. And then when you fill it there, you get points for the vertical line that you just made and the horizontal that you just made. You know what I mean? You get a bunch of points at once. So there is ways to plan where you don't get points in the beginning, but you'll get more points later. Which is how I dominate Delton. That's a lot of thunder. I doubt they can hear that, but we've had thunderstorms pretty much all night and all day, and we just had a big hit of thunder just there. And we only have two hours until the Pride Parade. Yay! Yay! I'm going to be at home watching Doctor Who, and Haley's going to Pride with her friends. I'm going to be soaking wet in my rainbow cape. And that does not sound fun to be soaking wet. Woo! In your rainbow cape. And my rainbow cape. The wind, you're going to have a tornado down there. It's just going to suck you up. Remember, never wear capes. That's <laughs> what they teach you. That's okay. Mine has Velcro, so the cape will come off. Smart. Smart. Can't be used against you. I think ahead. Azul is very cool. We really love the game. It looks absolutely gorgeous on the table. Just phenomenal. The tiles have this amazing tactile feel and look. It is. Like like Dalton was saying, it feels like dominoes. So you really feel like you're making this collage or you're making this piece of art as you're playing the game. It's kind of like Sagrada whenever you place the die. You're making a work of art, and I like that about Azul as well, which is why I'm really excited to talk about the aesthetics of games today. Hey, what can I get you? I'd like a topic. Any special way? Make it a top shelf topic. Coming up. Enjoy. But before we get into aesthetics, Delson, what are we drinking? So this beer is from a French-Canadian company. I believe they're out of Quebec. Let me see. They are from QC. That's Quebec, right? Quebec, Canada. They're out of Quebec. It is, I always pronounce it Unibrow, is U-N-I-B-R-O-U-E, or Unibrow, if you want to be butchering the name. If you want to be American. Right. This one is Atout Limon. Now, Atout Limon, if you know any like older metal music, is a Megadeth song. And this has Megadeth on the label. It's like a special thing they did with them. It's a Belgian-style Saison ale. It says dry hopped and 4.5% alcohol by volume. Unibrow does some very good beers. I like a lot of their stuff. Ooh, that kind of shot for a second, didn't it? That carbonation. I'm going to give this bottle cap to Steve. Don't it has foil on it. He'll probably choke. No. Wait, never mind. Do it. Do it. Not my son. For those of you all who don't know, my cat Steve, or our cat Steve, loves bottle caps. And we have a get-together, and somebody throws their bottle cap in a trash can, which you should throw it in recycling, but, you know, Steve will jump into the trash can or the recycling can and retrieve the bottle cap and add it to his collection. Yes, if we ever want to do a deep cleaning in the house, and we move all the furniture, and we pull out the couch, and we pull out the recliner, and we pull out the TV stand, we usually find an amount of bottle caps that is just astounding. Like that one time just under the TV stand, there was, what, 20? And then, like, 17 or 18 milk rings. So, like, the little rings that are on the milk cartons, our cats love them. Like the ones that when you twist the lid off, it kind of disconnects from that little plastic ring. 
And the problem is Delton doesn't drink milk anymore. Like he used to drink four gallons of milk a week. Shh. Four gallons of milk a week. And now he doesn't drink any. So we asked my mom and dad to just collect their milk rings throughout the year for the cat's Christmas presents. I didn't know you did that. Yeah, that's why we got a whole stocking full this year. You're a psychopath. You're welcome. You're a psychopath. I love my sons. Our cats are psychopaths. How is it? Uh, it's a good beer. It's nice and simple. A little bit of the sourness of a Saison. Not too stout. A little on the lighter side, but you can tell there's a little dry hop to it. That's an odd look on your face. I can't tell if it's disgust or like uh, inquisitiveness. It tastes like oregano. I can kind of see that. It must have been the hops they used. I mean, it's really good. I just had to place it for a second. Mm. This beer tastes like oregano and beer. I can see the oregano. So like Haley said, today's topic is the aesthetics of games. So aesthetics are something that are very important in all aspects of life. You don't buy a car just because it runs well. You buy a car because you like the look. You buy clothes, not because they're functional, but because you like the look. Part of the reason we buy games is not just because they're fun, but because we like the look. And now this doesn't just come down to the artwork, and it doesn't just come down to the theme, but it can be literally more than that to the box shape, the size. It can be the thickness of the tiles, the Azul-style tiles that you hold, that are these thick domino-like things, that tactility of some pieces. All of that plays in together to the aesthetic. And it's a very important part of why people do love games. It's like if you get on our shelf and take down Mechs vs. Minions. That is one of the most beautiful games, in and out, production quality-wise. Every piece has so much effort put into its creation. Right. Like every piece is so well-produced that it, the entire thing sitting on a table ready to play has this aesthetic appeal of just beauty on the table. And then you get excited to play it, and you play it, and it's awesome. But it's one of those things where you play something like that versus, I don't know, what's an ugly game we have? That's kind of mean. I mean, it is, but it's okay. But the only one I can really think of is Sky Traders, because I hated everything about that game. It was so <laughs> racist and so sexist and so bland, and I hated it, and now it burn it. Okay, well, an easier thing that most people have played, because that game is not popular, is like Castles of Burgundy. Castles of Burgundy looks just fine. There's not a problem with it. But the greens and the yellows are a little close together. It's kind of drab all in all. The pieces are outdated in quality and feel. I say the same thing with Puerto Rico. It's just an older style, an older artwork, an older production quality. Imagine if it was upgraded to like Mechs vs. Minions or Azul or most any other new modern game. Imagine how much people would go, this is something I want. It's not that Puerto Rico is a bad game. Like Puerto oh, Rico is one of our favorite game. games, and we picked it up because we wanted to play it so bad. But it would be friggin' awesome if it weren't just little with little black cubes for workers. They're like discs, like little dark brown discs, and like the plantation tiles for and, quote unquote workers. Yeah, and the building tiles are just this like real thin material. They weren't workers. You're yelling again. The listeners are gonna chastise you for yelling. I think that's just you. Maybe. But the aesthetics of a game do matter. Like, look at a game like Time Stories. The game is just gorgeous. Every single little bit of that game has been thought about in a way to make it this gorgeous, presentable piece of art on a table, as well as a game. And just look at how you put that on a game ready to play, on a table ready to play, and say, okay, choose between it and something like, you know, Puerto Rico. And if someone has no idea what games are and they look at the two... Time Stories is going to look the prettiest. It's going to draw their eye more because of that nice total aesthetic of the game. My favorite example of this is Santorini. 
So whenever we went mm-hmm. to Gen Con last year, Delton had told me about Santorini. He didn't support it in the Kickstarter, and he always wished that he would have. But he kept saying how it's going to be at Gen Con. I was like, oh, yeah, it sounds sounds pretty cool. It sounds really chess-like, which chess-like isn't my most favorite kind of game. But went to the booth that had, like, the giant version of Santorini. And I saw the pieces. And I was like, oh, my God, it looks like that island in Greece. And then Delton's like, yeah, Santorini. And I was like, oh, duh, I'm dumb. So I saw the pieces, and I played the game. And yes, it was the game that actually sold me. If the game sucked, I wouldn't have wanted to pick it up. But it was the pieces that drew me in. And it was the, so Santorini, you're actually building the buildings that make up the Isle of Santorini. So those big white buildings with the blue domes on top. It's a chess-like game where each of you plays a different god. And you are building these towers. And the one who, was it Caps? The one who gets to the third level. The one who gets to the third level first is the winner. Correct. Because you can cap it to prevent someone from getting up there. That's right. Okay. And so it was the aesthetics that drew me in and that made the game more worthwhile and made the made me want to pick up the game. And to this day, I like playing with the pieces. I like just holding the pieces. It makes the game more interesting. And plus I get to play with them between my turns, which kind of helps me because Delton gets analysis paralysis real easy. I really do. But it does. And that's one thing that a lot of people, you know, a lot of people talk about just the look of a game or the art of a game. You can love the art of a game and the game still wouldn't be the best looking or you could love production quality, but then the like everything else doesn't seem that great kind of thing. Like um, there's a game out called Ethnos that everyone loves and everybody has said it's awesome. It just doesn't look good. The artwork is good, but it doesn't it's not eye popping. It's not eye grabbing. It doesn't make you want to play it. It looks like an old fantasy cover of an art, you know, a fantasy book in a library or something. And it's one of those things where. Aesthetics is everything involved together. It's the entire total feel of everything through a visual perspective. I do like to include tactility when it comes to games because handling the pieces and stuff matters. It's why I love like Raiders of the North Sea has metal coins with the base game. And like for Rising Sun, we got the metal coins just because that feel adds so much more to a game, even though it's the most like unneeded, unnecessary thing. It adds to the total feel and everything. And so when you look at it on a table and you see metal coins that have that metal gleam or glean, whatever that word is, it adds Sheen, to that. sparkle, as- sparkle. Yes, it adds to that total aesthetic. So not to mention there is, that's not lemonade, the little red cups that come with it. There's mm-hmm. these little shot glass sized red solo cups. Do nothing for the game, but they make the game so much more fun. We use those to tap, tap twice. That means hit me or turn it over. That means pass. Or has, if you're out, you just knock it over. It has nothing to do with the game. But it just makes it that more fun. Yes, you don't have to have those to play the game at all. But they do. They make the game more fun. They make it look better. They make it feel better. You have something to mess with. It has something to signal. You can tell what people are doing more easily. And they do really add to the game for such a simple little concept. But you see it on a table, and you're like, are those little, are those little shot glasses? Solo, solo cup, cup shot glasses? And, and you it's have just... flashbacks to your blackout drunk days in undergrad. Well, not me. You, maybe. No. Not me. But it's just, it does. Stuff like that really adds to games. Like, we played Lotus recently from Renegade. Uh, Lotus is gorgeous, the whole game. And the thing I thought about with that one is this one is truly a game about aesthetics as well. Because you could play Lotus with just literally blank cards. And say this, you know, uh, I guess they would have to have something on them for like, like a number. Some number or something. It's like four. Once there's four of these, the flower's done. You could play the game like that. The pieces that you use to control stuff don't have to be a caterpillar and a butterfly and a dragonfly. But when they are, it just looks so much better. 
and it feels like you're doing what they want you to be doing, building flowers and placing caterpillars, that kind of stuff. Let's take a quick break to just appreciate how cute Hershey is. My dog's being real cute right now. He's all wrapped up in his little bed, and he's all warm under his blankie, and he's an asshole because he hates me, but I love him so much. And he's just staring at us. He's wanting out of here. He looks so uncomfortable, but comfortable at the same time. Just like dealt in every social situation. But I'm just... I'm going to take a photo of this so I can post it, and that way, when I post the episode, you will have a reference photo to be able to go back and see what we're talking about. So I love Hershey so much, but Hershey has been in Delton's life twice as long as I have. Like, literally, yesterday was the six-year anniversary that Delton and I started talking, and so next month will be the six-year mark since we started dating. Or yes. next month. be the Yeah, next month will be the six-year mark since we started dating. Hershey has been in Delton's life since he was 15. So this dog probably ranks above me in Delton's life, and this dog knows it. I feed this dog two to three times a day. I feed it with my own hands. And this dog still hates me. I will open up his pen when I get home. And if I am home for eight hours, he will not come out until he hears Delton walk through the door. Yep, he'll stay in his pen until I get home. And then he moseys on out to go potty. He's a good boy. He's just old. He's 12. 12. This yep. summer. So he's an old chihuahua. A little grouchy. But he's cute, so it's okay. A lot of grouchy. He is the aesthetic of my life. Just a fat, grouchy chihuahua. That's what I want. That's my whole life. If they say, what's Delton's entire life as an aesthetic? And you just look at a picture of Hershey with his tongue sticking out. And you're like, boom, there it is. Curled up under a blankie asleep. Exactly. So like we said, aesthetics, they do matter. No, you don't need them. You can look at chess. You don't need aesthetics. You don't need the full look and, uh, you know, artwork and design work and everything that's crazy over the top like Mex and Minion style. However, it helps. But like I said, you don't need it. You look at the Gip series we talked about with Gip and Devon and Punkt and Yinch and all those games. They're very basic. They're very simple. And they're just made to be functional more than visual. Visually appealing, I should say. But aesthetics do really help. The question is, if we can have an aesthetic of any type, what would that be? And now, join us. For a Malt House Games podcast special, bite size question. So that's the question today: is what would our dream aesthetic be for a game? And this isn't just theme, and this isn't just artist. This is everything. What theme? How would you want the artwork? What do you want in the look? Just every aspect of the game. What could you come up with that would be your dream aesthetic or your favorite? So does it count if mine's already been done? I mean. Make a few improvements, but sure. Okay. So, do y'all, I'm sure you guys remember Brian. He's from the episode with Rising Sun and the Magic episode. He's one of our friends. Hi, Brain, you're my friend! But he already knows that. I'm just reminding him. Anyway, so we played this wrestling role-playing game. Do you remember what it's called, Delton? Worldwide Wrestling RPG. Right. And so, we could just play the game. We could just play the RPG just as it is. But something that Brian did was he made logos and he had theme music for each of the characters. And that really helped me get into the mindset. Like, I used to watch Monday Night Raw with my dad back whenever he was in the sheriff's department and I was eight years old and he would come off of his shift and we'd watch wrestling together. But I really don't have an interest in wrestling beyond the nostalgia and the stuff that I learned from Delton and Brian because they watch it all the time. But I felt myself so engrossed in that game because of the music, because of the stories, because of the logos. I felt like I could become my character. I could make a voice with it. 
And so it really brought me in. So And so it might have taken him a lot of effort to make that music or pair it with the characters, but it really made me, who really doesn't have the biggest interest in wrestling, fall in love with the game and really get into it for a solid four hours. It was awesome. That one is really fun. Brian did. He, they weren't logos. They were like videos, like their intro video. Right. Remember? And it was so cool. And I mean, it really had nothing to do with the game. We could have played without it, but it got me into the headspace where I became Jim Cornette, the Kentucky accent announcer guy. And I had like this voice that was like an auctioneer. And that's not me. And I would never have become that or got the inspiration for that if I didn't have the little bits and pieces that Brian added to the game. Those aesthetics really drew me in and it made it exciting and fun. Not that it wouldn't have been already, but it got me engrossed sooner, quicker and easier and faster and better. I agree with that. It was a great time. We plan on doing it again. Uh, it's just a fact of we're all busy, which sucks. But it does. He did. He had this awesome music for everybody. And my character, Dr. McGrew, was the creepiest sounding uh, music I could think of, basically, for him. He did really great with all the music. So it was very, very cool having that and these little videos that he kind of threw together that were like the intro video for these people. And it just it really does improve those kind of experiences rather than just saying, all right, uh, yeah, you walk down to the ring and wrestle, you know, so it really does improve on that. You said I have to improve on that? What could you improve on that? Damn it. Let's see. I think the only thing I could really think of was if he had like a sample script that they would do in like a promotional, like just a four to five sentence introduction, like in their own speech with their own words that they would use. Like Mr. Was it Mr. McGrew? Dr. McGrew. Dr. McGrew. I feel like he would be like this 1800s Cockney accent, mysterious fellow where like there was one character who was like a steampunk. I feel like she would be rapid speaking, be very skater speaking. And so that would help us to get into the characters better. Because with RPGs, you really get into those characters. Which is why I love RPGs. Because I love acting. And I love just getting lost in a character. So I feel like that would help us to kind of get a feel for the character a little more. I could see that. Just have like a, something that tells you, okay, this is the character. Rather than just Brian telling us, it's like a little descriptor that just says... Here's their little intro spiel to let you know who they are. And it helps you get into their headspace, too. I could see that for sure. Become one with the character. Oh, no. How about you? So the more I think about this, the harder this is to come up with something. <laughs> First, I was like, oh, this will be easy. Yeah, dumb. No, not at all. Uh, this is what you get for letting Twitter decide. Uh, yeah, right. So what I did on Twitter is I did a poll, and it was like, your favorite aesthetic game, your least favorite aesthetic game, your dream aesthetic, and then one other one that I can't remember. And they voted dream aesthetic as the highest vote. So that is our question today. For me, I'm going to do I'm going to do something kind of different. I would say it's a slightly darker game, but it's going to be gladiatorial combat. So you're going to have a coliseum, but I want the board to be like textured in that manner slightly elevated on sides you'd have to like store it really differently right but make it where it looks like a little coliseum a little ring around it make it where the bottom has like a felted feel so it looks more like the sand which would be amazing and then you've got little people that are like little action figures that you control as your gladiator or whatever and then basically you just go from there and run with it and keep that going. I think doing that would be awesome because you would have this feel of the combat. You could have like when the lions come out, you've got like an action figure of a lion that's got fur and everything. And it's, you know, if it looked that way and you have a chariot with horses and you can literally put it in 
and it wheels around. And this would probably have to be like a miniatures combat game to pull off this in a game space, which I'm not a huge miniatures combat game fan, but not a huge one. I mean, I don't really care for them, but that would be awesome. Like if you literally plop down a chariot being pulled by two horses with like a dude on the back with a spear, like that's just so cool. That would be amazing. But if it was done correctly, where the horses looked like little horses and the chariot was designed that way. And they were soft like horses. And then you could play music that feels of that style and just see the like gritty Colosseum and have like the sort of sand. And so that way, if it's felted and you pull the horse's carriage through, the carriage wheels can leave tracks or something. Like, I think that would be so friggin' cool. But it would look phenomenal. You'd have to have a really big Colosseum. It'd be really good to draw people into the game. It really would. I think that's what's good about miniature games is people build those entire setups of landscapes and stuff and, and paint them. paint them all. And get all that done, and it looks awesome. But I think that would be cool if you could contain it to a board game size. I don't know how it would be done, but I think something like that, where you could go back to like a Colosseum or a Circus Maximus or something like that and use, I mean, like if they did a racing game and it was in a Circus Maximus, you know, so it was Roman um, or something like that would be really cool, but you'd have to do it and make it look like an actual circus and i just think it'd be so cool if you did it correctly you'd have to nail the textures and nail the uh the way things move and all that it'd be hard a lot of work but i think it'd be sweet that's kind of a random one but i don't think that'd be awesome i think that's really what draws people in too like i said yeah it's those visuals thank you guys for tuning in to episode 17 if you would follow us on social media we're on twitter facebook instagram youtube at malthouse games if you would like to email us, it is contact at malthousegames.com. Uh, the last thing I'll say, which is I've only talked about this one other episode, if you would like to help us improve our content by upgrading my computer to be better at editing, as well as get better lighting for videos and microphones in the future, we do have Patreon, PodPledge, and KoFly, KoFly, KoFi, Coffee, whatever, KO-FI, at Malthouse Games on all of those. We appreciate it very much. Definitely. But we just appreciate the support in general. We appreciate you all listening to us. I know our listening, um, I'm hoping by Gen Con we'll have a thousand listens, which least, is crazy. At least someone listens to me, Delton. Yeah, it's not me for sure. I never want to listen to you. Yeah. Lame. Anyway, that's it for our episode today. Follow us on Twitter at Malthouse Games. I did that. Oh. Yeah. Damn it. You're Follow <laughs> us on Twitter at Delton Brack. That's D-E-L-T-O-N-B-R-A-C-K and Squirrely Geek. Delton, spell it. At S-Q-U-I-R-R-E-L-L-Y-G-E-E-K. Good job, Delton. High five. Oh, my God. I'm being condescended upon. That's a weird way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. It's fine. That's everything. We should probably cut this off now. So before we wrap up today, I wanted to give a shout out to Katie Aidley. So recently, Ms. Aidley put out a... She's from Katie's Gaming Corner, right? Yes, from Katie's Gaming Corner. So she recently put out a post about her experience at Origins, where basically she was assaulted and she was disrespected. And how brave you have to be to write a piece like that and to put your experience out there and show that you too are a victim of this bullshit. That is very brave of you and I respect you and I want to say thank you. On behalf of women in the industry, thank you for being brave enough to tell everyone that this is my experience and this is not okay. Because it was, it was not okay. You deserve more respect than that. Nobody deserves to be treated in that way. And so, thank you. Thank you for standing up for yourself. Not only for yourself, thank you for standing up for women in the board game industry. That's all I want to say. 
definitely a hard topic to touch on, and it's been discussed a lot lately. You know, this kind of stuff can't keep happening. It's going to keep happening until we tell it it can't, until we draw the line, and that line is starting to be drawn. And definitely Katie stepping forward and saying, look, this happens. It happened to me. It's not happening behind closed doors. It's happening in front of everyone, and we can't let it stand. And it's something that's very important, and we just have to fight to get rid of it and fight to stop it and be aware of what's happening around us and make an effort is really what it comes down to. So, yeah, very brave of Katie to do that. And hopefully situations start to improve from here. Hopefully everybody kind of buckles down and says, all right, we're not letting this shit happen anymore. And if it does, it's like we're going to make consequences for it and things like that. So that's kind of a somber. Is that the word? Somber, a somber thanks. I'm sorry that happened to you, but I appreciate you standing up against it. And I think that's a good, slightly sad finish to finish out the episode. Thank you guys for listening as always. Sit back, relax, grab a drink, and play some games, everyone. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye.